I'm Kate Daniels. It's coming soon to your mailbox, and it is information about the 2020 census. Yes, a decade has passed, and it's time to get that proverbial finger on the pulse of the nation once again. To help us have a clearer understanding and to exercise this important task, we have with us Toby Nelson, who works with the U.S. Census Bureau. So here's good and important information that will help us take these important steps and complete the questionnaire when it arrives next month. Toby Nelson, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be on. This is uh, really interesting and exciting because the census, the 2020 census is coming and we have an opportunity to, for me, uh, to be more informed, but really to inform everyone about this because it's a very important time of uh, of our lives. Of uh, Is it each decade? I, you know, I have lost track of that. Yeah, that's a great question. The decennial census definitely creeps up on people. Everybody's learned about it in school, and they're familiar with it from that perspective. But because it only happens every 10 years, it sort of, uh, it sort of surprises a lot of people when it does happen. And, and it is definitely an important part of our lives. You know, in, in the course of many of our lifetimes, we will be intimately involved in the census to the degree that we have to respond to it every 10 years. So it, that occurs in six, seven, eight, nine times in every person's life. Right. And the thing is, this feels embarrassing to actually say, is I don't even remember answering the last one. I'm certain I did, but, you know, it's just not even a vague memory right now. Well, I hope you did, uh, but, <laughs> but that's a, that is a great question. Um, I, you know, a lot of people don't. Um, fortunately, though, uh, the census is such a big undertaking, and we're so experienced in doing it. You know, we've done it every 10 years since 1790, this will be the 24th census, that we're pretty pretty accurate in capturing a complete uh, enumeration and headcount of the nation's population. So after every 10-year census, we, do a, um, we have a semi-independent audit that's conducted to determine exactly how accurate we were. Um, in the last decennial census in 2010, we estimate that there was about a 35,000-person differential between the number of Americans we counted and the actual population of the United States. So keep in mind that's out of 300 million people, uh, so that 35,000 differential is essentially statistically zero. So chances are we we got you one way or the other in 2010. (laughs) And that means that anyone who takes any of the methods of answering the census is definitely counted. Is that Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So for the first time this year in 2020, we have three different methods uh, that people will be able to respond to the census. Uh, You can respond to the traditional mail-back method where you fill out a paper questionnaire and mail it back to us, and that's been an option for Americans since 1970. Uh, But we have two additional methods uh, this year. You'll be able to call a 1-800 number or respond online, and that's uh, the online response option is new for the 2020 census. So you have a couple of different options uh, to respond, and certainly the census is so important. We do encourage everybody to respond as soon as you receive that questionnaire in the mail. So that's what happens. We should watch our mailboxes for that to appear, yeah. and then we have the options. Yeah, so for 95% of Washington households uh, in March next month, uh, you'll be receiving an invitation in the mail to respond to the census. And as I mentioned, we do have three different ways to respond online through the 1-800 number or the paper form. Uh, Now, the questionnaire is very short. It's about 10 questions, and we anticipate it will only take most people 
about 10 minutes to respond. Now, if you don't respond to that initial questionnaire through one of the three methods, uh, we'll send you a reminder and then another reminder and so forth until early May. In early May, any household that has still not responded uh, will be sending an enumerator to uh, visit you at your home, and, and they'll keep coming back until they're able to make contact with you and get your information that way. Now, I should asterisk that. Um, I said that 95% of Washington households will experience the census that way. Um, there is a small percentage of the population, about 5%, uh, that will be counted in different ways. So uh, just to name a few examples, if you live in a very remote area where you have no uh, regular address at your property, the first contact you'll have with us will be an enumerator who will drop off a paper questionnaire. So we have some, some areas in Washington State in Chelan County and Okanagan County, Ferry County, even a few areas in eastern King County uh, that that applies to. Um, if you're a college student living in a dormitory, you'll be counted as part of a separate operation that we call group quarters, which also counts, for instance, um, long-term residents of nursing homes and residential care facilities. So there are some specialized counting operations we have, but for 95% of Washington households, your first experience with the census will occur next month in March with that initial mailer you'll get from us. Okay, so we have that piece established, and I appreciate hearing about, you know, some of those exceptions, which then brings yeah. to mind thinking uh, a lot because we do have such a large homeless population in this area. Yeah. What happens there? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. So obviously counting the population of people experiencing homelessness is a priority for us. Um, one of our sibling agencies, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, does a wonderful point-in-time survey every year in which they, they count the homeless population. We've taken a lot of learnings uh, from them and some of their best practices and adopted it into our own counting practices for people who are experiencing homelessness. So in western Washington, we've devoted three days at the end of March to uh, enumerate the population of people experiencing homelessness through a uh, operation we called service-based enumeration. So this is going to occur the last two days of March and April 1st, uh, so March 30th, 31st, and April 1st. Uh, during the first of those days, we will be visiting uh, homeless shelters and other residential locations where the home, people experiencing homelessness may habitate. On the second of those days, we'll be uh, visiting non-residential locations such as soup kitchens, mobile food vans. On an April 1st, the third day of that specialized enumeration, uh, we'll be visiting what we call transitory outdoor locations. These are locations where um, we know through past um, surveying uh, people experiencing homelessness may congregate. Now, I think it's important to also note that there's really no one definition of homelessness. Uh, one could be experiencing homelessness but be living in, for instance, a friend's home or apartment. And, of course, those people, uh, persons will be captured through our, our regular enumeration operations. So while the census does not necessarily produce a count of the homeless population, we do absolutely include uh, people who are unhoused in our overall national headcount. So that's a very important and great thing to know that that is happening. And therefore, as you mentioned, some of the homeless may be living with friends that we know people couch surf, that sort of thing. So would they right. therefore be captured in a person answering their own census form and saying there are actually eight of us living in this household where maybe the family right. is six or seven? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a common misperception uh, that we see a lot of when people respond uh, for their household. They might only include, for instance, family members. Uh, that's not what really what we want you to do. We want you to include everybody living in your household um, as of as of April 1st. Now, uh, you'll begin to receive questionnaires at the end of March, but our what we call our reference date for the census is April 1st. So when you fill out the census questionnaire, you want to ask, uh, is this, will this be my usual place of residence as of April 1st? And you should include anybody on the census questionnaire in your household for whom that applies. And an, another kind of another undercounted population, in addition to perhaps a, a non-relation staying in the home, are children, young children, children under the age of five particularly. A lot of households fail to include those uh, young children in their census questionnaire, and we do really want to capture everybody. So even if you have a newborn baby you've just brought home from the hospital, they should also be included uh, in that census questionnaire. Yes, they are a living, breathing human being. They, right? they are, and it's surprising that a lot of people omit them for, for whatever reason, but uh, but it is important you include them. Uh, it, one one of the most vital reasons is to ensure that um, that communities and schools receive the the funding and services they need. So I think a lot of people know that the census is used to apportion seats in the U.S. House of Representatives, and and that's the the number of seats that each state will receive for the next 10 years. But in addition to that, uh, census headcount data determines how more than. $650 billion per year in federal funding flows to states and localities. So that's not over 10 years, but that's every single year. So when you think about that, that you can see just how important uh, accurate and complete headcount data is to make sure that vital programs are funded, programs like schools, uh, infrastructure, uh, the making business decisions, uh, rural, rural planning strategies. So we really, we really want to ensure that there's a complete count of everybody, regardless of age, regardless of housing status. Which really leads to making the comment about the critical importance of this, where people might feel that, oh, this is, you know, getting too much information about me and, you know, feel really mm -hmm. concerned about that. But we need to take a different stance and realize it's really for our best interest and the best interest of the country to really honestly answer all the questions. Yes, absolutely. That's that's entirely true. And when we transitioned to, um, in 1970, I mentioned we began offering people the option to send back, to fill out their own questionnaire and send it back, which is a little bit of a departure of how we had done it since 1790, where we would always send an enumerator to everybody's house. We found that when people have the option of self-responding in the comfort of their own home, and they don't have to provide those answers to, you know, a stranger on their doorstep, we do get much better data. And that's kind of really a reason, well, one of many reasons we encourage people to exercise that self-response option. Don't wait for us to have to send somebody to your doorstep to get the information. Just respond online uh, via the mail or, or through that 1-800 number. Have you had that experience, though, where people have had some resistance to answering the census questions? Um, that's certainly something I think that we experience every 10 years. Um, and, and oftentimes uh, the reticence that people express when they encounter a census enumerator or when they receive an invitation to respond to the census in the mail is born out of a, out of a misperception about how the data that we collect will be used. So it's important to emphasize that the census is not uh, like a marketing survey. Um, I hope it goes without saying, but obviously we don't sell your information. 
nor are individual responses released. So they're aggregated for statistical purposes only, um, and all individual responses to the census are kept under lock and key for 72 years, at which point they're then transferred to the National Archives. So, for instance, my own responses to the census essentially will never see the light of day in my lifetime, short of you know some miracle of medical science. But um, in fact, and I think this really uh, bears underscoring, we're actually prohibited by law from sharing individual census responses with anyone, including law enforcement or intelligence agencies. In fact, we cannot even release census data in response to a subpoena or as part of legal discovery. So all Census Bureau employees take a lifetime oath to uphold the confidentiality of individual census responses, and that oath extends beyond the term of employee with the Census Bureau. Uh, violation carries a substantial federal prison term, so I think it's very safe in saying that um, individual census responses and personally identifiable information of Americans collected as part of the census is definitely among the most closely guarded information held by the U.S. government. So, uh, so a lot of the reticence that we occasionally see from individuals is because they may not necessarily understand just how, how secure uh, their data is that we collect. And perhaps uh, it, it, we could look at it as being more secure if we answer it immediately uh, through the mail or online and not wait for someone to come to our door. Because, well, has there ever been an instance where someone comes along as a, a fake employee of the Census Bureau? Well, that's an interesting question. It's one I've, I've received a few times, actually, in the last uh, couple of months. And I should note that it's not really a problem that we have seen much of in past censuses outside of isolated instances. So I think people should always exercise prudence and caution anytime they deal with someone they don't know. But at the same time, this isn't really an issue we have reason to believe uh, will be a substantial concern going into 2020. But I do think that you make a valuable point, and it's definitely our recommendation to avoid this ever becoming a concern in the first place. It's important that you respond thoroughly and accurately to the mailed census questionnaire you'll receive next month. By doing that, you generally eliminate the need for us to send an enumerator to your doorstep um, at all. Uh, and if you have a moment, I could maybe just kind of mention a couple of other safety tips that we recommend um, when, when responding, if that's all right? Absolutely, yes. Sure. So um, the, first of all, if you respond online, and, and I know that uh, a lot of people are very Internet savvy at this point in time, though we do have a, a large population that might not be. So if you're responding online to um, the decennial census questionnaire that you'll receive the invitation to respond to next month, make sure you're responding to a website that ends with .gov or .gov. So the online response portal will be hosted at a .gov address, not .com, .net, .org, um, and all .gov addresses are regulated uh, by the federal government. So you can be sure that you are at an official government website if you are at a .gov address. If you're responding by mail, uh, look at the address on the self-response envelope you receive. Households in Western Washington will be mailing back their questionnaires, or those households choosing to use the paper method, will be mailing them to an address in either Jeffersonville, Indiana, or Phoenix, Arizona. Those are the location of our two data capture centers. So the, the return address on the mailer that you send back should be addressed to one of those locations. Now, if you do not self-respond, and we do have to send an enumerator to your door, um, make sure they're wearing an identification badge. So all Census Bureau enumerators will be wearing an official Census Bureau identification badge. And if at any time you have a question as to whether that person is an official Census Bureau enumerator, you can get the name off that badge 
and call our 800 number at 800-992-3530, and they'll be able to confirm uh, the authenticity of that person at your doorstep. And, and just one final thing, we do ask some personal information as part of the census in terms of uh, date of birth, ethnicity, but it's important to, to underscore that we do never ask, we never ask uh, financial information such as credit card account numbers, bank account numbers, your full social security number, and we'll never ask to come into your home. So, so if somebody at your doorstep asks you any questions along those lines, that would be reason for pause. So another area that fits into this, but fits into where people might be really, really reticent to answer is when it comes to immigration status. Yes. Uh, So um, we do not ask as part of the census questionnaire uh, anyone's status in in the United States. So um, uh, it's important, I think, uh, for people to understand that when we conduct the decennial census, we're trying to capture the entire nation's population, the resident population of the United States. So that includes anybody who's in the United States, uh, including citizens uh, and and non-citizens alike. Conversely, interestingly, we do not enumerate uh, citizens of the United States permanently residing outside of the country because, of course, while while they're important from a perspective of of voting and and voter registration, that their numbers don't necessarily apply to the apportionment of congressional districts. So, um, so yes, we do not uh, we do not inquire of anyone's uh, immigrant status in the United States. So that should really alleviate, I think, most or maybe all of our concerns when it comes to participating a hundred percent in the census. I, you know, I hope so. And uh, you know, it's important to know that. Um, These are kind of concerns that we do hear uh, every 10 years. Like I mentioned, we've been doing this since 1790, so these are all concerns that we have heard uh, before. This isn't our first time around the block, and and as the census progresses over the years and, frankly, over the centuries, we've tried to adopt our practices uh, and and modulate our operations to respond to those concerns. I think we're really at a place now, and we've been at a place for for quite a number of decades now, where where people can really be uh, assured that – the census is not is not something. Quite often, uh, you know, we hear as as citizens and consumers and residents uh, of the United States various data breaches and and issues with privacy. The Census Bureau has been dealing with personally identifiable information and the personal information of residents for well over 200 years. And uh, this is not. Uh, we've never had any cases in which Americans in, American information the information of Americans has been released. Uh, through the Census Bureau. Uh, we have safeguards in place that really eclipse uh, what you can see with uh, you know, marketing companies and things like that. This is not uh, an area that we believe Americans should be concerned about. So in your experience, Toby, have you seen where different parts of the country are, they would get the gold star, they respond 100% and everybody's, you know, doing exactly what they should be doing? Yeah. Right? We, well, we definitely have some blue ribbon areas uh, just in Washington state. Um, I will say that in 2010, I believe it was, uh, we had a community in Michigan that, that scored an 88% self-response rate. So that is uh, the rate for the number of households that voluntarily self-responded to the census that we did not have to send an enumerator to. And that was fantastic. Now, now specific to Washington State, um, Washington State had about a 76% self-response rate, which was higher than the national average. Uh, the national average in 2010 was about 74%. 
So that's really fantastic. Uh, Washington State is is above average. It's punching above its weight. And within Washington State, we definitely do have some blue ribbon areas. So uh, Clallam County led Washington State in 2010 for self-response with an 81% self-response rate, which is kind of approaching, you know, one of our our national high points. Uh, Jefferson County had an 80% self-response rate. So we do have a lot of really uh, fantastic areas in Washington that do a great job of self-responding. That said, there are always also areas that we need uh, to work on. So Okanagan and Ponderay counties in 2010, had about a 52% self-response rate. That can be problematic because when we have a low self-response rate in a very rural area and we have to send enumerators into that area, uh, it can be quite expensive for us. And by us, you know, I mean the American taxpayer. Um, it does cost more to send an enumerator door-to-door and especially in a more rural area than if people self-respond uh, on- online through the 1-800 number or uh, through the paper mail-back method. So, um, yes, there are... Overall, Washington State has done a fantastic job in past censuses, but certainly there are areas and communities that we really kind of want to try to get those numbers up a little bit in 2020. And so the people who are not self-responding in those areas or or any area, is it because of reluctance, the resistance to answering questions from the government? Well, you know, we find uh, that hard-to-count populations can really span, uh, can really kind of run the gamut of, of reasons why, why people aren't responding. So, so when we talk about hard-to-count populations, um, we often include uh, recent immigrants who may not have a cultural familiarity with the census, um, persons with limited English skills, uh, persons distrustful of the federal government, as you mentioned, also uh, young adults, students, uh, we often have a hard time getting responses back from, and that's also because they don't have a cultural familiarity with the census. As an adult, they have never actually had to respond to the census. It's always been their parents who have responded. So, so we have a couple of different programs in place to make uh, responses as easy as possible from traditionally hard-to-count communities. So, um, I, just to name a couple of, of operations we have uh, going on right now, uh, you know, for the first time ever, as I mentioned before, we do have an online response option. So traditionally, as I mentioned, one particularly hard-to-count community have been young adults. So by providing that option, we, f- we hope that we will uh, increase the reliability of our enumeration of that group by um, providing a response option they find more convenient. Uh, we're also providing language support in 59 non-English languages, that's more than we've ever provided in any past census. It's more than we offered in 2010. So uh, individuals with the option to respond in one way or the other in languages ranging from Chinese to Laotian, uh, Ilocano, Spanish, Italian, German, American Sign Language. Um, and third, uh, we have a robust what we call a partnership program. So in Washington State, uh, you're lucky that the Bureau has assembled uh, two dozen partnership specialists that really represent probably the most effective partnership program we have in the country. And, and so the partnership program consists of Census Bureau staff who work to develop alliances with uh, corporations, community groups, churches, local governments to get them to communicate the importance of the census uh, to their constituency. So, um, you know, we find that as federal, as a federal bureaucracy, maybe sometimes we're not always the best messenger for that. So when we can work with trusted uh, third-party messengers to, to communicate the importance of the census, we find that we're able to get those, those response rates up a little bit higher. Um, in fact, in Washington State, the, the partnership team that the Bureau has deployed in Washington State has been so effective uh, that we've decided to cite our regional faith-based summit 
in Western Washington, and that will be coming up uh, this in this upcoming week. And so this will be an event that will be held in Tukwila that will bring together more than 200 faith leaders from uh, California to Alaska, uh, Hawaii to Nevada, and they'll all be assembling to discuss ways that they can mobilize their congregations to participate in the census. So, uh, you know, we realize that faith leaders are often the most trusted voices in their communities. So if we at the Census Bureau can kind of earn that trust and capture that trust, then they can in turn communicate that trust onto their congregants. So, so this upcoming faith summit that I mentioned, we're going to have representatives from the Christian, uh, Muslim, Jewish, Sikh, uh, Hindu faiths, and, and a number of other religious traditions. Uh, and in fact, uh, Ron Sims, former King County Executive, who's an ordained uh, Baptist minister, will be delivering the keynote address at that summit. So um, our partnership program, the Faith Summit, uh, the diverse language options that we offer, the online response options, these are all just a couple of ways we try to kind of capture those hard-to-count communities and put their minds at ease about the uh, importance and reliability of the census. And as I think about that piece of it, I can see that there would be this trickle-down, trickle-across uh, information uh, to educators, to schools, because so yeah. often, you know, the kids are the ones that know the language. They can take that information home to their parents who may not quite be grasping what's going on because, as you said, you know, uh, new immigrants to the country not understanding what's going on. Uh, I could. This sounds like a, a really great outreach method. Uh, Method that you have. Yes, we often we often have adopted a, a term that's employed by the by the military, the concept of the force multiplier, where we can contact or evangelize or or get somebody on board who can then uh, in turn uh, spread that message out to a number of their own contacts and a number of their own uh, the, uh, people within their community who view them as a trusted voice. We can then kind of. Uh, uh, it's a domino effect that, that increases trust and increases responsiveness to the census. So this, the partnership program, uh, we actually, this is, uh, I believe, the third census in which we have um, operated, and we've had great success with it in 2010 and in 2000, and, and it's really shaping up to, uh, in this year, in 2020, to really be a cornerstone of our, of our overall efforts. Well, I feel really excited and positive about the fact that we're having this conversation this morning, Toby. <laughs> well, well, so am I. It's not often that people do get excited about a dry topic like statistics, but this is, you know, a very important civic duty. It's a public duty, just like jury duty. Um, and so we're always happy when people do get excited about the census. Right, because we can see how each of us is is critical to this and where we might find a way that we can pass on the message to encourage our friends and neighbors and community members. Yes, that's absolutely true. Like I said, we always get the best data when people self-respond, when we don't have to send somebody to their doorstep. And so as much as you can encourage your neighbors to um, self-respond, let them know that they're going to be getting that census questionnaire in the mail beginning next month and encourage them to respond, to communicate how important it is for your community, for your city and county in terms of federal funding, in terms of its representation in Congress. Uh, that is always appreciated, and I think that message, um, uh, we're trying to get that message out, and, and, and we found that we've, uh, this year in 2020, we've had a very uh, receptive public who, who understand the value of that data that we're collecting. So excellent. And of course, there's a lot more information, a wealth of information, if we go to your website, correct? 
Yes, absolutely. So uh, the public can go to 2020census.gov. So that is a website we've set up specifically for the decennial census. So uh, the Census Bureau's website is census.gov, uh, but we have a special website specifically for the 2020 census where people, it's kind of a one-stop shop. People can get information about any aspect of the every 10-year head count. That's 2020census.gov. And you know the reason we have the two websites, I think a lot of people uh, are under the misperception that we at the Census Bureau, um, you know, that they lock us in the basement of the Capitol, and every 10 years they unlock it and we go out and do the census. That's not entirely true. Uh, the Census Bureau actually does uh, produce more than 100 different statistical products, and we do this uh, every year. In some cases, we produce uh, data products every three months, uh, every six months. Certainly, the every 10-year census is kind of our senior prom, but it's, it's just one of a number of different data products we, we produce to support uh, government operations. Really, it's fascinating. As you say, yes, statistics can be so dry, but when we see how it's so relevant to our lives, uh, and, and it's really a living organism, if you will, it is very yes. exciting. Yes, it is. And I'm glad, I'm glad you're excited about it. We are excited about it, too. And I think as people start to see some of that initial data come back, we'll be wrapping up uh, counting operations in the end of this summer. And then by, uh, by New Year's Eve of 2020, initial state headcount data will be released. And I think you know, that's always a time when people get excited to see how their state has performed and, and what their representation in Congress will be for the next 10 years really something more to look forward to. Well, this yeah. re- <laughs> this has been really so wonderful, Toby Nelson, to have you give us this time to inform and educate us. It's so critically important. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much for having me, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk. You're so welcome.